I wonder if you've ever had the experience where somebody loved you or they said that they loved you, but it turned out that they really only loved you because of what you could offer them or because of what you could do for them. This could be reflected in many different painful scenarios. You think of the classic parent that lives vicariously through his or her children, and they don't really seem to love their children. They simply love when their child makes them look good, as they are on the basketball court, and you know, you know the typical dad screaming on the sideline, and loving when their child succeeds and makes them look good. They love that their child makes them look good, but the relationship isn't there. Or we can flip it around to the child, A child that doesn't really seem to love their mom or dad, they simply love what their mom or dad can give to them. Or it could be in a husband and wife relationship, sadly. Or boyfriend and girlfriend. Or it could simply be being friends with somebody. That it's obvious that they don't really love us. They love what we can provide for them, which is really the only reason that they stick around to begin with. Oftentimes we would describe this as being used, right? Somebody is simply using us to get what they want. That they don't love us. They don't love you. They don't want to know your heart and soul. They don't want to have a meaningful friendship, a deep, genuine relationship. They simply want what you can offer them, what you can give them for their own gratification. But the truth is, you and I are often very guilty of this same thing as it pertains to our relationship with the Lord. That our tendency can be to love the Father, to get the Father's stuff, instead instead of loving the Father because you get the Father. And this morning I want to look at a very well-known passage of Scripture that you all know that displays this point. And it is found in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. And I want to read verses 11 to 32. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Of course, this is Jesus speaking. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe 
and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his oldest son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found. You all know this story very well, but you can see within it, and what bubbles out of it is that the tendency of both the prodigal and the older brother is to love their father, to get the gifts of their father, instead of loving their father because they get their father. This is profoundly seen in what we call the parable of the prodigal son. Most of you probably have a heading in your Bible above verse 11 that says the parable of the prodigal son. But we clearly miss the depth of this story if we only focus on the prodigal. This story is not just about the prodigal. This story is about the father, the prodigal, and the older brother to the prodigal. I mean, notice how the story begins in verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. And so those are the three characters that we're going to concern ourselves with. The father and his two sons. But we also need to keep in mind to whom Jesus is speaking. It's important for the whole coloring of this passage to understand the audience to whom he is speaking. Who he's talking to. When we're able to discern who he's talking to, then we'll understand how to properly apply the parable. And you see his audience in verse 1 of chapter 15. Notice there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And so he told them this parable. So think about this audience. On the one side, you have the tax collectors and you have the sinners coming to Jesus, right? That these are the wicked. These are the outcasts of society. These are the ones who had sold themselves to sin. And you could probably identify them with the prodigal, couldn't you? Tax collectors and sinners running off could not care less about what God has to say. The sinners and their drunkenness and their promiscuity connect with the prodigal well. The love of money that the tax collectors have is also connected well with the prodigal son. But then you have the other half of the audience with the Pharisees and the scribes. The the massively religious people of the day, everything they did during the day was to express their religiosity and zeal to obey the law. And by the end of the parable, we'll see how they are connected, not with the prodigal son, but with the older brother. The father in this parable is presented as a loving and caring father who had two miserable sons, yet they are miserable for different reasons. 
And of course, the Father is a picture of God the Father here. And so even though this may be the case that both sons are miserable and miserable for different reasons, they both had one very important thing in common. That both sons did not love their father because they loved their father. They loved their father for what he could give them. Look at verse 11 with me. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So the younger son here is asking his father for his inheritance before his father has even died. And this would have been a completely outrageous thing to do within this society, as it would be in our own, wouldn't it? It would be very off if one of you sons went up to your father and said, Hey, old man, give me what's coming to me, right? Give me my part of the inheritance. Because really what it's saying, and what this prodigal is essentially saying, is that even though his father's not dead, what he is saying is, you're dead to me anyway. You're dead to me, so give me what is coming to me. And so in this culture... The oldest son, and as an oldest son, I wish it were still this way, but the oldest son would receive two-thirds of all of the estate, of all that the parents had, and then the other third would be divvied up among the other children, and apparently he only has two sons, so this prodigal son would have received one-third of the estate, and you see that in verse 12. And so this father takes a third of the estate, he gives it to the younger son, and then what remains is understood to belong to the oldest son. And right from this spot, we really do get a sense of both hearts of these sons. We clearly see the heart of the prodigal, right? It's wicked. He's come after his father before his father's even died. He wants his inheritance. He's snuffed out his father. His father's dead to him. All of his actions are portraying the wicked heart of this prodigal. All he wanted was his, his, all he wanted was his inheritance and he would be off. But you also have a picture of the older brother here. When the father divides his land between the two sons, the older brother says nothing. He doesn't say a word. As the older brother, he should have intervened at this moment. He should have loved his younger brother. He should have stepped in and told his brother to have some sense, to love their father, to care for their father, to have respect and honor for the father. But what is clear is that the older brother doesn't say a word, which reveals for us, especially in the greater context of the parable, that his heart was in the same place as his younger brother. Again, not loving his father for his father's sake or because he simply loved the father. He loved his father's stuff. And so this is the kind of difference that you see in our families, though, isn't it? I mean, some of us and our children, we kind of say, okay, where's my child on this spectrum? Are they maybe a little more like the prodigal? Bombastic in the way that they're rebellious. They they don't follow the rules and their hearts are kind of easily seen as a result of that. The the prodigal type children, they kind of run their mouths and they make a huge scene which display their ugly hearts. But the compliantly rebellious children, they simply keep their mouths shut, yet they're just as wicked, right? And they kind of have that two-sided thing. And this is the case with the older brother. He could have his wicked heart. He just didn't have to say a word about it. So he remained quiet and he would get his two-thirds of the estate that was coming to him and he's just simply not compelled to intervene in this situation because he doesn't love his father or his brother. 
And so the parable continues and the younger, set, the younger son decides to leave his father's house and to go to what Jesus calls a far country. And in that country, the prodigal spends everything that his father had given him. He lived recklessly. He made no investment with the money. He didn't, he didn't buy a home, apparently. He didn't buy a farm to try to you know, work uh, his farm and to bring up some money, make any kind of investment in any kind of a business. There was nothing. He simply lived recklessly, wasting all that he had. And so he was now at the end of all of the money that he had received, and he's penniless. And Jesus tells us in verse 14 that in that country... A severe famine arose. Now, when you think of a famine, you need to think of a famine of biblical proportions. Don't think of a particularly dry summer in Maine for a few weeks, five weeks without any rain. Biblical famines were often years long. And so the prodigal son now has no money. He has no place to live. He has no job. There's a huge famine. And so as a last resort, what does he do? He hires himself out to feed pigs. Now, any of you here with a cursory knowledge of the Jews, you know that Jews don't do pigs, right? Leviticus 11.7 very clearly states that pigs were unclean animals and they should not be eaten by the Jews. Are you not happy that that was fulfilled in Jesus? And we can eat pigs now? Amen. Amen. But Jesus knows... That one half of his audience, doesn't he? He knows the Pharisees and the scribes. And he knows that as they are listening to the disrespect and the unlawful actions of this prodigal son, and now the fact that he's hanging around with pigs, he knows that those Pharisees and scribes, their faces must have just been amazing to look at in that moment. As they listened to this story, they would have cringed at hearing that this man who had done all of these unlawful things was now swimming in a pigsty. To bring pigs into the picture would to bring something to mind that the religious rulers would have absolutely despised and would have never been seen around. To think of this Jewish prodigal who had dishonored his father, now coveting pig slop, would have been a vulgar image for them to have in their minds. Is not Jesus the master teacher as he knows exactly what they would hate? It's the exact thing that he presents before them to think about. They would have disliked this. But look at verses 15 and 16. So he hired, went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. So not only is there a famine, not only has he spent everything, not only does he long to eat what the pigs are being fed with, but no one will give him anything. Anything. This is total end of your rope for the prodigal son. And this is the part of the story where something has to give. Where something has to change. There needs to be some sort of directional change in this man's life or he's going to die. And maybe, maybe you've been in this kind of situation. Where literally in a physical sense within your life you have been at the end of your own rope. Nobody would help you out. That You're just completely at the bottom. There's nowhere else to go. You cannot go any deeper. But remember that this story is meant to convey a spiritual message. 
And so the, what the prodigal is going through is really a demonstration of what you and I were in apart from Jesus. That we were playing in the pigsty of the world. That there was nothing but spiritual famine. That everything was destitute and against us. And finally coming to an end of the season of sin where it felt so life-giving. But in the end, we realize that all of that sin was life-quenching. And this young man was at the end of that season. The sin was pleasurable. The carousing was great. But all that it did was bring him to the end. And his sin landed him in a pig pen. And then something dawns on him. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So the one that was once dead is now alive. The one who took a third of the property and completely squandered it and had absolutely nothing to show for it was now the only one who could provide for him once again. Don't forget again who the audience is of Jesus. Don't forget all of those tax collectors and sinners, those outcasts of society, those prodigal children. Don't forget that they're listening to Jesus tell this story as Jesus tells them about how this young man goes to his father, leaves the that far country, gets to his old home, and the father makes a beeline toward his dirty, disgusting, filthy son who isn't even worthy to be called his son. His father sees his son a long way off. He's overwhelmed with compassion in him. And in a very undignified way for an old Jewish man, he sprints toward his son. He falls on his neck and he kisses him. And the word here really does imply an incessant kissing. Just can't stop kissing his son. Can you imagine those tax collectors and sinners sitting there and listening to how destitute this prodigal was, yet how much the father loved him, and realizing that they themselves were those prodigals, and the father would run to them as well. Can you imagine the hope that this would have given them? That the father would receive them back and forgive them and clean them and care for them. But what about us? Those of us who maybe identify kind of like a prodigal, constantly running. Maybe we've never come to the Lord. Maybe we've never submitted ourselves to Christ and, and, lo- and, 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 and followed after Him. My brothers and sisters, the Father is there calling His children home. I was watching the Billy Graham funeral and one of his daughters got up and gave a testimony a few a couple of them did and I think it was Ruth Graham she got up and she told the story about how she and her first husband had divorced and then she ended up moving I believe closer to home there was a good church and so forth she 
got to that church and the pastor introduced her to uh, a widower. And she ended up dating this widower and her words were fast and furiously. They, things went quite quickly, fast, and they ended up wanting to get married. And she said her father called her from Tokyo and was, hey, why don't you slow down a little bit? Let us get to know this guy. She said her mom called her. Let us get to know him. Her children weren't comfortable with it. Nobody was comfortable with it, but she wanted to go through with it, and so she did. And then she said within 24 hours, she knew she made a terrible mistake. And she literally had to flee, apparently, from the guy for her life. And so she left. She said it was a two-day drive to her parents' house. And she said the whole way there, she's just wondering, what are they going to say to me? It was so beautiful. She said, as she drove up the mountain, drove into the driveway, she said her dad was standing there. And he said, welcome home. I love you. Imagine what it would be like to be this prodigal. You come home. Welcome home. I love you. For all of those who would come to him, he would receive him unto himself. So you have, if you have not come to him, he does not stand there to zap you. He stands there to welcome you, to love you. Thankful for our gracious father. So obviously forgiven, the son goes into his practiced apology to his father. But you notice that he's not even allowed to finish, is he? Before the son even asked to be a hired servant, the father turns to his other servants and he tells them, he says, get the best robe, which would probably have been one of his own robes. He says, get a ring and get some shoes and kill the calf. My son is home. I mean, can you imagine how shocked this prodigal would have been, how ashamed even he might have been. That here he was, smelling like pigs, likely no clothes, obviously barefoot. He wouldn't have had any jewelry on. He squandered everything. And the father says, bring the best. Get the best robe. Get the ring. Get the shoes. My son is home. My son's not going to be seen without the best. I love this. That he doesn't just say, hey, yeah, go check out the prodigal's old bedroom. I think we have some of his old clothes around. No, he says, get the best. Get the best. My son will be clothed with the best that I have. But the father doesn't stop there. He then says to kill the fatted calf. The father doesn't say, again, you look kind of hungry. I think we have some leftovers. We'll get you cleaned up in a little while. No, we're going to celebrate. I love what one author said. I can't remember exactly. But basically following all of the partying that the son had done, who thought that he needed another party? The father apparently thought he needed another party. And the important thing to note about this feast was that it would have been a symbol in that town of complete forgiveness. The whole town would have known that the son was home. And not only that the son was home, but that he was forgiven. That he was totally and clearly forgiven. Reconciled to the father. Fully restored. And it's the same with us. That our Father sees us in our brokenness and our nakedness. And in His mercy, He runs to us and He clothes us with the robes of righteousness of Christ. And He gives us from His treasury, His bounty. And He puts shoes of the gospel on our feet. And although we may be tempted to despair and have seasons where we feel distant from God, He still calls us son. He still calls us daughter. And when He looks at us, He sees the clothes and the jewelry and the shoes that He put on us himself so the son that was presumed dead is now alive 
But there's still another son to talk about. That's the older brother. The son in the first couple of verses of the parable that didn't stand up and try to protect his younger brother from making a terrible decision because of his own love for self. But you see, what should be very clear for us is that the older brother was spiritually destitute long before the younger brother was physically destitute. So as Jesus continues telling this parable, the feast is going on. The fattened calf has been killed. The entire house and town were celebrating that the son had come home. But his older brother is still out in the fields. He begins walking toward the house, Jesus says. He hears the music and he hears the dancing and asks one of the servants what's going on. It's like he's the last one to know. I mean, you think that someone would have run out to him and said, hey, your brother's back, right? I mean, I have two sisters. If one of them ran off and came back after a few months, of course, I would want to know. But you notice that that is not why he is mad. Again, showing that he didn't love his brother at all. He wasn't happy to see his brother back safe and sound. Instead, he becomes angry and refuses to go into the party. Look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So in the beginning of this story, the younger son treated his father with no respect while the other brother remained silent. And now the older brother is now verbally disrespecting his father with his anger and questioning his decisions concerning the party for his son. He's talking to his father like, like he's the worthy one. Like he's deserving Like he's the one who actually deserves this special treatment that the younger brother is receiving. Kind of sounds like a Pharisee, doesn't it? Someone who stands by and feels as though they're the ones who are deserving. They're the ones who have kept all of the rules. They're the ones who have done everything the father has said to do. I deserve it. Not the one who has squandered everything. So there he is out in the fields working. Coming in after a hard day's work, only to see everybody is having a party. He has a sense of entitlement. It's like, hang on, I'm the one out here working and I never get anything like this. I mean, you see it within his reply to his father. He says, look, right? That's an interjection. Like, quickly, I'm going to say what I have to say and you be quiet. So look. Then he responds in anger. He begins to list his own virtues like a Pharisee. Remember Paul? When he would give those illustrations, when he would say, yeah, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was born in the tribe of Benjamin and on and on. And he kind of list all of the things that would have made him wonderful in the eyes of all of those who were religious rulers. This is exactly what the older brother says. He says, don't you realize how many years I've served you? Don't you see how I've never once disobeyed you? He's, He's listing the things that should make him look good in the eyes of the father so that he can get stuff. So that he could get a goat. 
And so within these words, if we weren't convinced already, the older son clearly conveys that his service to the father had nothing to do with the fact that he loved his father. It had everything to do with the fact that he loved himself. His years in the field, his supposed faithfulness, had everything to do with himself and his own sense of entitlement. And this is scary because we all can be here. The love of the Father, so often, is not what compels us to do what we do that are spiritual things. So often it's our love for ourselves. So yes, the younger brother runs off, he fulfills the desires of his wicked heart, he wastes his money on prostitutes, and he squanders everything all on himself, all for his purpose. But what does the older brother want? He wants the same exact thing. He doesn't want to joyfully live in communion with his father and serve him out of love any more than the younger brother wanted to. What the older brother is mad about is that he slaved away for years and his father never once gave him a goat, let alone the fatted calf. He never got the recognition from the father that he thought that he should have gotten. And if you look closer, you see even more of the older brother's heart because who did he want to eat the goat with that he thought he deserved? Not his brother who had just come home, not his father, who was entreating him and loved him, but his friends. And the sad reality is that the older brother shows us that it is very possible to be visibly faithful, to be working in the fields, to be within the father's house, and completely miss the heart of the father, to do all of the work for all the wrong reasons. He wanted his father's goat. He didn't want his father. He wanted his father's land. He didn't want his father. And the question for us is, what do you want? Do you love God because you get God? Or do you love God because of what you feel like he can give you? Okay, if I I just stay faithful and worship attendance and I show up midweek, and I do something around the church, maybe God will give me that child that I want. Or maybe he'll give me that financial bonus from work that I want. Really, the, the purpose of my serving is so that I can get some stuff on the side. It's not because I simply love my father. If you struggle with this sort of thing, whether you're more like the prodigal whether you're more like the older brother, what do we think that the solution is to this sort of thinking that we can tend to move toward? And I think that it is very simple and something we need to consistently remind ourselves of. The love of our Heavenly Father is what should be what compels us to love Him, not the gifts that He gives. And this is a sphere that I think we Christians have to remind ourselves that we live in. That we live in the new covenant. We live in a wonderful age. We live in a great time where everything has been fulfilled in Christ from the old. He has done all of that work on the cross. We can look back to it and be reminded of all of the great things that he has done for us, right? On the cross and his death and his resurrection. What a beautiful story of the gospel we have that we can remind ourselves of. That God showed his love in an undeniable way to us by sending his 
Son to the cross for us. And we know that He loves us. I mean, if you don't know that God loves you after sending His Son to the cross from you, then I guess you'll never know it unless He opens your eyes to see that beautiful and wonderful truth. But it's vital that we consistently remind ourselves that this is the foundation of our relationship with Him. The work that He has done for us in Jesus Christ. We often say it, that we are not saved by works. And that is true as long as we say our works. But we are saved by works if we're considering the work of Jesus. It is the work of Jesus that has saved you. It is not your own work that will save you. But so often we're so dependent on blessing to flow from our own obedience. Again, not being compelled and motivated by the love of God, but by being compelled by what we hope he'll give us. And so why are you in worship this morning? What's your motivation for serving God and the maybe different responsibilities you have within our church family? What motivates you? Is it the first great commandment to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Is it the second great commandment? So I've got that vertical relationship with the Father, now horizontal, that I'm now going to love my brothers and sisters. If you're here this morning because you're hoping it will make God think better of you, or if you're hoping to score brownie points with God, or you're hoping He's going to give you something for volunteering, you want the stuff that you know God can give. I feel the weight of these two brothers in my heart. And in truth, it can be easy to be a pastor and to walk through ministry and be just like this older brother, like, God, you're blessing these people, and I don't feel like you're blessing me on the same scale here. But I feel the weight of these brothers. That on the one side, I feel my heart wanting to pull away at times. Again, like the hymn writer says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. But the Father's love has to motivate us in those times of wandering to come back to Him. He will receive us. For those whom his love compels, he also will receive. But on the other side, I feel that tendency of that older brother. That I want what's coming to me. I want what I think God owes me. And what I deserve for serving him. But the Father's love is what has to motivate us in those times. To love the Father because we get him. And so the simple question is, do you love your heavenly father because of what you want to get from him or because you simply get him because he is truly all you need? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll open our eyes to this truth. Lord, there may be some who are right now years long into running. Lord, would you open their eyes to see the truth? Lord, help them. Open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel, forgiveness, peace with their Father. Bring this about. Lord, so many of us struggle with a sense of entitlement and feeling like we're deserving. 
Sometimes it's maybe <coughs> it's hard to see others. Maybe the blessing that they're receiving and we don't feel like we are. But oh Lord, help us to see that if we have you, <coughs> 